unlike the seasons, you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And your word is given to us as a constant. You've given us your word that we might see Jesus. That we might see the unfolding revelation of Christ and your redemptive plan for all mankind. So God, guide us this morning as we read what is what is really a very Guide us to, to see ourselves and then to, to focus on our Savior. As we read your Holy Spirit, work in and through the reading and preaching of Christ. Amen. Amen. Right, Acts chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. This is God's voice. After the other war ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed. Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Gaius of Derby. Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. In five days we came to them at Troas, and we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, his life is ended. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed in a while longer. <laughs> so departed. They took the youth away alive and were not a little comfortable. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we decided. The day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. <coughs> May God, by his word, upon our path. So this is one of those passages, particularly in a sermon series, that is very tempting to skip over. For the most part, it, it seems like a little more than a chronological of Paul's third missionary journey. Doesn't seem like there's much here, but we believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that all scripture is given to us and meant to be profitable, and so we need to ask how how is this passage meant to profit us? What does the Lord possibly intend for us to glean 
in this passage. For starters, there's a very clear practical warning. Do not sleep through the sermon or it might cost you your life. <laughs> so I don't know how old this, this individual was. Eutychus says he's a young man. And I remember reading this passage as a young man and thinking, look, I understand where he's coming from. I, I get it. I've sat through some long sermons, and who can blame him? And I mean, seriously, Paul's a great preacher and all, but who begins a sermon at midnight, Richard? But then when I became a preacher, I started to take comfort in this story, because if the Apostle Paul could put people to sleep, then I may be a better preacher than Paul. Um, if, you had, if you had been in that home for worship that evening, if you had witnessed that fatal fall, what would you have thought? How would you have reacted? About 14 years ago, I was preaching on Easter Sunday, and I was just about to wrap up the sermon when I heard the, the telltale sign of, of sound of dry heaving. Right about where Kimbo's sitting, about two-thirds of the way back, this, this young kid began to violently vomit up all of the Easter candy he had eaten that morning on the way to church. And uh, I have this vantage point from where I was standing and preaching. You should have seen people scatter. I didn't know Presbyterians could move like that in worship. Um, what would you have done if you were in my shoes? I'll tell you what I did. I said, so friends, let's live as people of the resurrection and let's pray. I just ended it right there. I mean, it doesn't matter what I was saying. I thought, though, this is the Holy Spirit's way of saying you've set it up. And so, and so I ended the sermon right there. I love this passage, not Paul. He kept going until daybreak. He was a preacher's preacher. When I, was, um, when I was a high school freshman, I remember sitting in service one Sunday next to my friend Ben, and he about did himself in. We were sitting a few rows in front of my parents, and, and if memory serves, it was an especially dry sermon. No offense to my late pastor, God rest his soul. Ben's head was was bobbing like a young chicken, and I kept jabbing him to keep him awake, but eventually his will gave way, and he fell forward, and his head hit the pew in front of us. <laughs> it sounded like a shot going off. And what I want you to understand is that I've been where you are. I, I have a dual perspective. I've sat many years where you are sitting, and I've stood many years up here, and I have this dual perspective, and I am keenly aware. I think about it every week. The mind can only intake what the butt can endure, right? That's preaching 101. I don't know. Maybe the takeaway for preachers is to, be, is to not be so long-winded. Maybe the takeaway for parishioners, don't listen to a sermon about... <laughs> It's been said 
and this is where I really want to focus this morning, that traditions cherish the living faith of dead men, while traditionalism cherishes the dead faith of living men. Let me say that again. Traditions cherish the living faith of dead men, but traditionalism cherishes the dead faith of living men. And so how, how do I get back from this person? 26 years have passed from Jesus' crucifixion and ascension. 26 years have passed until this scene and this season that Luke was recording. The year was 1856, and Paul was in the middle of his third missionary the, the new covenant had been inaugurated. Christianity was flourishing. If you've seen anything as you've been with us during the study of the book of Acts this year, this was a very transitional time. This was a very transitional time from the old covenant practices of the early Jewish believers to the new covenant practices of the church, which is now made up of both Jews and Jews. A very transitional time. And what we see in this passage is, is with Paul, there is a respect for traditional Old Covenant practices, but also an embrace of new traditions and new practices. There's a lot we can learn. Verses 1 through 5, they, they really just tell us about some places that Paul visited, some people that he met along the way. But then, when we come to verse 6, it's easy to skip over, but don't. There's a very interesting note. Paul and his companions waited until after the Feast of Unleavened Bread to travel the trail. That they spent an extra week in Philippi celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. A feast that was rooted in God's deliverance of the Israelites from the Egyptians. If you were to go back and look at Exodus 12 and Exodus 13, what you will find is God instituted the Passover meal and He told His people, this is a meal I've given to you. You continually celebrate this. And in the next chapter, He institutes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And both the Passover meal and the feast, the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread were memorial celebrations and reminders of God's protection and deliverance and salvation. And yet, 26 years earlier, Jesus had taken the Passover meal and revealed its ultimate purpose. In the upper room, Jesus gathered with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, and he took unleavened bread, and he said, This is my body, given for you. When you eat it from, from this point forward, you are to remember me. Consider it this way. The disciples entered that upper room prepared to celebrate Passover, and they left that upper room having celebrated the first Lord's Supper. Jesus showed in the Passover meal God's ultimate purpose and His ultimate fulfillment. And so, so why did Paul continue to celebrate an old covenant feast that had been ultimately fulfilled and placed by Jesus? Because that tradition still had value. That, that tradition still served as a reminder of God's covenant salvation of his people. That tradition was a connection point between Paul and his Jewish brethren. Now, I find this absolutely fascinating. I hope you do as well. One verse after we're told that Paul celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread, an old covenant tradition going back to Exodus 13. 
One verse after we're told that Paul celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we're told that he gathered on the first day of the week to celebrate Christian worship. And because this is the earliest text we have that indicates Christians were already gathering together regularly on Sundays for worship. And so I want you to understand this. Within the space of one verse that covers one week, we see Paul maintained at least one old tradition and participated in one new tradition. And the new traditions continued. Uh, the passage ends in verse 16 by telling us that Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem. Why? Because he wanted to celebrate the day of Pentecost. Within 27 years, the day of Pentecost had already become a regular Christian observance. In that particular year, it was celebrated on May 29th. So we, we actually know one time where Paul was on a specific day. He was in Jerusalem on May 29th in the year 1857. Now I hope that that history and those details that your eyes aren't getting heavy by years. Here's what I want you to understand. Paul, the same apostle who celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread, would later write in Colossians let no one pass judgment on you in relations of food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus. Do you, do you understand the point that I'm trying to make and the point that I believe the Lord would have us to see in this passage? There is a valid place for old traditions and there is an important place for new practices and both can exist side by side. What we see is Paul maintaining an old covenant tradition because it was a connection point to his Jewish brethren and because it still pointed to Christ's salvation, but we also see him implementing new traditions and new practices. Sunday worship, the day of Pentecost. Traditions cherish the living faith of dead men. But we must make sure that we avoid traditional wisdom. Because all that does is cherish the death of living. And if we put more stock in our traditions than we do in Jesus, to whom they are meant to point, then we miss them. We don't have to abandon old traditions, but we mustn't treat any tradition as a substitute for our Savior. And so very practically, what does all this mean for us? What does it mean for us as a church to be rooted both in history but always looking forward? That's what our aim is, is to do. To be rooted and grounded in our history but to always be looking forward. And so I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts. Some of you are probably thinking we're just now getting to the outline. I agree with that. This won't take long anyway. Two thoughts. Here's the first. Tradition or not.
I believe a very, very strong case can be made that Isaiah 6 gives us a timeless template for this. And we can talk about this some other time, why I believe Isaiah 6 is a seminal passage that's meant to guide God's people in this. Isaiah had a worshipful encounter. He had this awe-inspiring glimpse of God's glory. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings. With two they cried out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in our services, every single week, we begin with a call to worship as God gathers his people into his presence. We sing songs of praise, and then one of us prays a prayer of praise, and that is meant that is meant to um, glorify and magnify the grandeur of God. To point us in some way to God in his holiness. Then when Isaiah saw the Lord, it says the foundations of the threshold shook and the place was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, woe is me, for I'm undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah confessed his own sin, his own shortcomings, but he also acknowledged corporate sin. I'm lost, I'm undone, but I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And in our services every single week, we corporately but also personally confess our sin. Most of the time we do that with greetings, sometimes we do that with songs, and sometimes we do it in silence. Then in Isaiah's worshipful encounter, an angel took a burning coal with tongs from the altar and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What did that angel do? He announced words of gracious pardon. What do we do in our service? Every week after we've confessed our sin, we hear the assurance of God's gracious pardon. And then as we transition to the sermon, my goal is to always point you to Jesus and his grace and to the glory of the gospel. We do this week in and week out in some way. That, that's the basic art of our worship. It's taken directly from Isaiah 6 because we believe that worship should be guided by Scripture. But listen, not only is our worship guided and shaped and informed by Scripture, it also conforms to the basic Christian pattern for well over a 1,000 years. I didn't bring it with me, and you couldn't have seen it anyway. It was too small to grasp but in his book, Christ-Centered Worship, Brian Chapel shows how the same basic elements that we use each week in worship were used by the English reformers in the 17th century, by the continental and German reformers in the 16th century, and even, and even prior to the Reformation in Rome for hundreds of years. Here's what I want you to understand. We build institutional and personal memory by observing weekly worship. By worshiping in a very similar, not identical, but in a very similar way. Christians have worshiped for well over a thousand years. We are placing hooks in our soul to hang the gospel. We do this. We follow we follow the tradition of the church for well over a thousand years. I would even make the case that, that if you were to read the Didache, if you were to go back and read some of the earliest historical writings of the church, 
and very helpful, but we can also say no, we don't have to be, we don't have to be captivated. And so let me illustrate this with something else that we do on Sunday mornings at Sunday school. Did you know that Sunday school is a relatively new invention? Uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, uh, in his book, Revitalizing the Sunday Morning Dinosaur, Ken Hemphill traces the origins of Sunday school to the late 1790s, so nearly 1800. Now, that is really new in the grand scheme of things, isn't it? Now, our pause. Don't freak out. I'm not trying to get rid of Sunday school. Okay? I'm not trying to make a play to get rid of Sunday school. But what I want you to understand in this illustration is that you won't find any mention of Sunday school in the New Testament. You won't find its origin in the book of Acts. For us at CPC, it's a traditional practice, a ministry vehicle that serves a very valuable purpose. But if you haven't noticed, very few churches do this anymore. That we are part of a dying breed. Very few churches have Sunday school anymore. And again, I promise you, I'm not trying to put the kibosh on Sunday school. My point is simply this. Can we, as, as a body, can we as a church, make the distinction between tradition and traditionalism? Here are some helpful questions to ask when we're trying to discern that. Is this tradition, and I'm not talking about Sunday school, I'm talking about any tradition, is this tradition warranted by Scripture? I didn't say is this tradition prescribed by Scripture, but is it warranted? Is it warranted? Does this tradition have a basis in Christian history? Does this tradition make much of Jesus and in some way point people to the gospel? Is this tradition beneficial to the body of believers here at Christ Presbyterian? There may be some other traditions that other churches observe that have no real benefit to us and, and they become artificial. So is it beneficial to us in the particular time and place that God has gathered here? This is a really important is this tradition comprehensible and meaningful to those who are new to our Or does it leave them out? We don't have to answer yes to each of those questions. But if the answers are mainly no, perhaps we have taken traditions and slipped into traditionalism and embraced the death. A church's values do not change. That would be my opinion. Church's values do not change. At least they should not change. Now, our, our values as a church are worship, teaching, nurture, and reaching. But those come directly from the book of Acts. But those values are what we see directly here in the book of Acts, that God's people are worshiping people, that they are teaching or discipling people, that they are an evangelistic, mission-minded, reaching people, and they care for one another, that they provide for one another, that they nurture one or Those come directly from the book of Acts, both at in description form, but also in prescription of the apostles. And so values do not change, but ministry begins. Whatever they may be, should always be open and change. I want you to imagine the challenge it was for Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, but he calls himself a Hebrew. I want you to imagine the change and the, the dissonance in his own soul this must have created when he went from primarily his whole life worshiping on Saturday, on the Sabbath, and worshiping on, and the Sabbath was so central to the Jewish people. 
to worship him on the Sunday. Because Paul understood the difference. That the big picture doesn't change, but this is a change that is warranted. It's all in with this. Whatever we do as a church, as, as we follow the direction of Paul, as we seek to make much of Jesus, as we hold on to traditions of those who have gone before us, but work with all our might not to slip into traditionalism and just observing traditions for tradition's sake. Let's, let's make it our goal to make much of Jesus. To clearly see the gospel and to exalt Jesus. To look forward and be mission-minded. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, what we do? We'll look back to what He has done And we can say, thank you, Lord, for what you have done. And we can say in the same breath, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because we can look back and we can look forward and we can hold those things in And so let's pray. Uh, let's pray for a faithful response. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this, this passage where a young man dies but has taken up a lie. We thank you that we get to see and piece together where Paul traveled on his third missionary journey and how he came from this place to that place. But we're thankful that, that in a very subtle way we see the church and these early believers 26, 27 years after we left them. Holding on to and maintaining old practices, but instituting new practices. Lord, let us be a body that does that as a 53-year-old congregation. Let us be committed to embracing the faith of our forefathers, a, a faith, the faith of Christ, rooted, rooted in Scripture and given to us and handed down for generations. But let us also not be damaged by any secondary practice that doesn't make us Jesus. Let us embrace traditions, but let us set aside God, uh, I pray that maybe over the coming weeks and months and years, you will, you will open up to our eyes some way where we have, we have taken a practice and made it more significant than our Savior. Perhaps you will open our eyes to something that we're not doing, that we could be doing in a better way. Help us to see these things and to be the bride that you intend us to be in church where you're making us without spot or blemish, and we can say with saints for nearly 2,000 years, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and fulfill in us what you promise. That he who began a good work in us will be faithful to bring to completion the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until that day, we will continue to worship, continue to nourish, to reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ and see to build roots.